Good evening. I'm Anna Halligan, and welcome to the Ecology Hour. This show was recorded last week in Humboldt County at the office of Friends of the Eel River, where I sat down with the executive director, Alicia Heyman, to discuss the potential of a free-flowing, undammed eel river. Tonight, I want to talk about the Eel River. It's the third largest watershed in California, and as such, it's probably one of the best opportunities for restoring salmon habitat in California. And that's because there's always multiple limiting factors that affect how many salmon are in our watersheds. And these factors often overlap and they can be compounded and it makes it really difficult to address what's going on and then develop plans to recover and restore habitat for these fish. But one of the factors that is really straightforward is barrier removal because barriers limit the amount of habitat that's upstream. So in order for us to be successful at recovering salmon and steelhead, we have to make sure that they have access to enough habitat to support their targeted population sizes. And the easiest way to do that is to remove barriers for them that impede their ability to migrate upstream. So we have this really large, significant watershed that still has wild runs of multiple species of salmon. And um, we have a unique opportunity right now to remove a really significant barrier that's limiting their ability to access historical habitat. And so we're gonna talk about dam removal. And dam removal is super complex and and, and, and its dams have impacted salmon and steelhead throughout the Western US and in some places, it's really just not even feasible to remove them. But every once in a while, you get this unique opportunity to remove a dam. And it seems like that opportunity is presenting itself right now in the eel. And so I have Alicia Heyman here with me tonight. She is the executive director for Friends of the Eel River. And she's probably one of the best versed people to talk with me today about this subject. And so I wanna welcome you, Alicia. Thanks for joining me. Thanks, Anna. I'm happy to be here. So why don't we start with, um, if you wouldn't mind, just giving a general overview of the history of, of the two dams that are located on the Eel River. And specifically, I'm kind of curious if you could talk a little bit about like what was their original function and why were they built? Yeah. So the two dams on the Eel River are part of a complex called the Potter Valley Project. And um, it actually also includes an out-of-basin diversion that takes water from the Eel River through a mile-long tunnel in a mountain and transfers it into the Russian River. Um, so the, the entire project um, was completed a, almost 100 years ago. It'll be about 100 years ago uh, next month. Um, and so the first, if you're traveling upstream like the salmon do, the first dam you come to is Cape Horn Dam. That was the first one that was built. It was completed in 1908. Um, it's a relatively small dam um, with a relatively huge impact. It's got a fish ladder, uh, but the fish ladder is really inadequate. Um, in fact, the fish ladder causes take of listed species. 
Um, and for those listeners out there who are unfamiliar with that term, take is a um, term that means to kill or harm or harass um, species that are listed under the Endangered Species Act. So Cape Horn Dam has this fish ladder. It's the tallest and highest in the entire, well, in the state of California for sure, but maybe in the nation. It's, it's a pretty unusual fish ladder. Um, so if you're the salmon going up there, you manage to um, climb that fish ladder, that's great. But unfortunately, 12 miles upstream from there, you are abruptly stopped at Scott Dam. Scott Dam is the larger of the two dams. It was completed in 1920. Um, and uh, it's a complete barrier to fish passage. So fish are then prevented from accessing about 10% of the watershed uh, once they reach that dam. And you know, you say 10% of the watershed and you're like, oh, well, how much is that really? Um, it's hundreds of miles of habitat, um, about 280 miles to be specific. And it also happens to be some of the best habitat in the entire watershed. There's a paper that recently came out from the National Marine Fisheries Service that uh, really emphasizes some of the um, you know, aspects of this habitat that make it super high quality. I think we'll get into that a little later. Um, and then that diversion that I spoke about, that's back downstream at Cape Horn Dam. Um, it, it transfers about 65,000 acre feet uh, per year into the Russian River watershed. Um, and the reason for that transfer is because they were using gravity to send the water down to the powerhouse that's at the end of the diversion tunnel. Um, that powerhouse, back in the day when this facility was first built, that may have been a significant source of electricity. Um, but today, the nameplate capacity is 9 megawatts. So that's, you know, if it were functioning at full capacity with all the turbines running, that's how much it could generate. That's a really insignificant amount of electricity but it normally generates more like 4.5 megawatts. But today and for the last eight months or so, uh, the powerhouse has been completely offline because one of the main transformer banks failed. Um, so at, at this point, it is generating no electricity and it's quite clear to everyone involved that that no longer is the main, um, the main desirable result of this project. Um, the reason that anyone really wants to keep this project around is to continue that water diversion. Uh, luckily for the fish and for the people who care about the fish in the Eel River, uh, it is a, a possibility that that diversion could be continued when the dams are removed. And so that's, that's something that I think is a really exciting potential. Folks out there maybe heard about the two basin solution. That's something that a variety of stakeholders were working toward. Um, Unfortunately, those efforts to relicense the project and pursue the two basin solution have failed, but, um, but it's, it's likely that when we see PG&E's license surrender application and the plans for decommissioning, that there, is, there, there could still be an opportunity for a continued diversion and a win-win-win uh, solution. Yeah, I definitely want to talk about that some more. So that was great because I wanted to get an idea of like, how they were, how, what their original intent was, but how they function today. And I think you just did that perfectly. You described that. Um, so one question I have about kind of t the current conditions is like, well, you mentioned the, the quality of habitat upstream, but what about the actual conditions of the, the facilities themselves? Cause they're a hundred years old. So yeah, 
what and and I think my understanding too is that the the is it Scott Dam that's located on a fault line? That's right. So yeah, what what is some of the kind of like basic like uh, maintenance that could be involved with maintaining something like like a site like this in the future? Yeah, mm -hmm. well, um, there's a lot of reasons to be concerned about dam safety and reliability, particularly at Scott Dam. Um, if, if anyone wants to get really into the details here, Friends of the Eel did a whole blog series last year about dam safety and reliability. You can find that on our website at eelriver.org. Um, but, you know, just to kind of quickly go over some of the points, um, they're, they're a hundred year old structure. So inevitably you're going to have some problems. Um, the, the design of the structure is really, was really flawed from the beginning. Um, folks who can, can get online right now and see a photograph of the dams, particularly one from above, you'll notice that Scott Dam doesn't go straight across the river. It goes mostly straight across the river, and then there's this really sharp angle, and that angle is there because during original construction, um, the dam was you know, engineered in a particular way, and as it was being built, um, they, they realized that they were preparing to anchor the dam to this giant boulder. They thought this boulder was bedrock and was gonna be a good anchor spot for the dam, but it was not. That boulder actually shifted during construction and they had to re-engineer the dam so that it goes just in front of that big boulder. Um, they gave it the really unnerving name of the knocker. So now when you look at construction photos of the dam, you can see this, this gigantic boulder labeled the knocker that sits right behind the dam, um, right on, right on a, um, a fault line. That fault line is capable of producing earthquakes up to a 7.0 magnitude, um, which you know would be a really serious problem. And there's an active landslide on that side of the dam as well. That's the, that's the south side of the dam where you see that odd angle. Um, so that's, that's all something to be really concerned about. Another thing that um, I sometimes stay up late <laughs> thinking about at night is the way that water is released from the dam. There's two ways that it can be released. Uh, when the reservoir is totally full, like I, I think it actually might be right now, water spills over the top of the dam. Um, but otherwise, in most normal conditions, they use a needle valve at the base of the dam to release water. Um, unfortunately, the eel is a really sediment-heavy watershed. I think it actually has the highest suspended sediment load of any river of its size. Um, it's just a, um, you know, thanks to the unique geology we have here, it's a really sediment-heavy river. And a lot of that sediment has built up behind the dam. Um, and when we talk about sediment, it's not just that really fine silt. It's everything from, you know, that, that silky silt um, to giant boulders and everything in between. Um, so a lot of that material has built up behind the dam and is actually in danger of collapsing around the needle valve and clogging it. If that happens, there's no way to release dam from the, or to release water from the dam. Um, this means that fish don't get water, which is, you know, my main concern here at Friends of the Eel River, but folks who are concerned about water supply on the Russian River side, it also means no water for them. Um, so, you know, the, the ways in which the dam was constructed are really not ideal, and, um, and, you know, you usually evaluate infrastructure after it's been around for 100 years and come up with something better. 
Um, I, I would like to mention also that the dams are rated as a high hazard facility, and that means that loss of life is likely in the event of a dam failure. Um, so that's, that's something that we are, are pretty concerned about here. Um, and this is all underscored by the fact that most of the data that PG&E holds um, re related to dam safety emergency planning um, and evaluation of the structure, um, you know, reviewing cracks and leaks and things like that, all of that stuff is classified as critical energy infrastructure information. Um, and, and so it's uh, locked up tight and not even a uh, public records request can, can get you that information. So how bad is the situation at Scott Dam? No one really knows. And that is the scariest thing of all, I think. It's interesting because that part of the reason why we have this unique opportunity is because this facility is license is about to expire. That's right. Yeah. And so I would imagine answering some of these questions and determining how you would maintain a facility like that into the future would be part of that relicensing process. And I definitely want to ask you some questions about that, but I didn't know the story about the knocker, which is a terrible name, yeah. but that makes sense because like you said, the eel is known for its relative kind of young geology. And if you've ever been fortunate enough to raft down the Eel River, you can see that the river valley is really composed of a lot of deep-seated landslides that are constantly putting material into the eel. And they're sometimes like car-sized boulders, and it's really beautiful, um, but probably a challenging location to build a facility like this because of that. That's for sure, yeah. So... Um, I want to talk a little bit more about the water part because that's kind of one of the biggest challenges with this. I mean, you've already kind of described that the generation of electricity or power from this facility is minimal and infrastructure is aging. In fact, you mentioned that the powerhouse is offline. However, recently in the Press Democrat, there was an article that talked about that and how PG&E is actually going to maintenance that and repair the powerhouse. So can we talk a little bit about where we are today with PG&E, the, the current license will expire on April 14th and of this year. And there's activities that are going on despite the fact that we are at a position where the license is going to expire and PG has indicated that they are not interested in renewing that license. So yeah, just, what are we looking at right now? Yeah, well, I just have to say up front, understanding what motivates PG&E is a fool's game. <laughs> I don't think anyone on the planet could ever really wrap their mind around why PG&E makes the moves they do. They're a company that um, has been found liable for killing people. They are negligent in the way that they manage their infrastructure. And they are, frankly, beyond shame. You know, most companies, you could... You could encourage them to do the right thing because it's the right thing and or because it'll be good for their PR or it'll be good for their bottom line. None of that seems to influence PG&E. So trying to understand why they would make a decision to rebuild a transformer for a project whose license expires in 25 days is, um, is really kind of a complicated process, but I'll, I'll do my best to, to walk you all through it. So PG&E, um, they work closely with the California Public Utilities Commission. 
And um, as all of you who pay for electricity know, um, rates fluctuate. And the reason for that is because PG&E is constantly, um, you know, they every four years they have a general rate case process in which rates usually go up. Um, rates, you know, their funding is allocated to all these different little boxes that they have set up, one of which is a reserve fund for decommissioning hydroelectric projects. Um, and right now, PG&E is undergoing this process of, you know, asking for higher rates and more money and specific monies for different things. And what I've learned is that PG&E actually is able to make, uh, make a profit on investments for capital expenses. So this transformer repair, they've said, uh, will probably take them about two years and cost five to $10 million. And when PG&E invests the money in that repair, they will make about a 10% return off of that. So they are going to repair this infrastructure, this totally unnecessary repair, because as we've said, this project uh, generates a measly amount of electricity. I think it's I think it may even be below 1% of their, um, of their hydropower portfolio. So it's a really, really insignificant amount of electricity. But they're going to they're gonna repair this infrastructure, they're going to charge ratepayers for it, and then they're going to make money off of that. Um, so it, you know, kind of, kind of puts a pit in the bottom of your stomach thinking about it. Yeah, and so maybe it'd be helpful to kind of talk about relicensing so that people can understand even how they could do that if their license is about to expire and they're not planning to renew it. So my understanding was and when you when you start talking about relicensing a dam, the main agency that you work with is the Federal Energy Regulatory Regul Commission. Thing. Yeah. So if you FERC. hear me say FERC, <laughs> um, that's not a nasty four-letter word, but it is kind of a nasty but you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, it's funny, I live in a world of acronyms, so I it was just realized, like, I don't remember what the whole agency right. name is, but that's the primary agency that regulates these types of facilities, um, and it takes a really long time to secure a license, um, either as a new entity or to renew an existing license, so I think it was, like, in 2017 when conversa conversations began to occur because the license renewal was coming up. And so what was PG&E's position then? Yeah, so in, in 2017, when they, um, they, they started the process of renewing their license, and we were all along for the ride. Um, at the same time, Congressman Huffman started the ad hoc stakeholder committee. And so we were having meetings with everyone from um, you know, tribes and fisheries interest in the Eel River to irrigators and water supply interests in the Russian River and everywhere in between folks who um, live on the reservoir, you know, all, all the stakeholders were a part of this process. And, um, and we were just kind of, you know, preparing some studies and exploring what it might look like to try to remove the project and continue a, a ecologically appropriate diversion. Um, and then PG&E really took us on a pretty wild ride. Um, they ended up declaring bankruptcy due to their mounting liabilities for the, the deadly wildfires. Um, and then they ended up, um, I believe they tried to 
first sell or auction the project and that wasn't successful, then they withdrew their notice of intent. And so what that means is they said to FERC, we do not want to own and operate this project anymore. So we're officially withdrawing from our attempts to relicense it. And that's a really important point today because that means that um, when the license expires, there, there's no possibility for PG&E to change their mind at this point. So when they did that, um, I mentioned before the Two Basin Partnership, this group of this subset of Congressman Huffman's ad hoc committee uh, came together, a couple of entities um, who were preparing to relicense the project on their own. They ultimately were unsuccessful, um, largely because they weren't able to come up with the funding that was necessary, but also because PG&E was unwilling to uh, negotiate or work cooperatively with that group, unfortunately. Um, so, so yeah, so now we're at a point where five years have elapsed since that process began in 2017. And um, unfortunately, the process for surrendering a license can be also be a lengthy one. Um, and this is where right now we have an opportunity to step in and you know leverage all the evidence we have as to why these dams should be removed really rapidly um, to prevent PG&E from stalling and dragging their feet. Um, they, you know, in, in their filings with the California Public Utilities Commission, PG&E has estimated that um, that decommissioning the Potter Valley project is actually has a pretty low probability and it's probably going to be 15 years down the road. Um, and they're basing this on the fact that other projects have taken a long time. Um, and thankfully, some of the factors that made those other projects take a long time aren't going to come into play in this uh, project. Um, but they're also using some kind of outdated information um, for this estimate of how long decommissioning is going to take. Um, and while this whole process is going on, which I would just like to optimistically throw out there, um, I think it could be as quick as five years if they really got their act together and were really properly incentivized by groups like Friends of the Eel River, who are pretty good at incentivizing such actions. Um, but while this is all going on, FERC is going to issue them annual license extensions. So every year they're gonna basically just say to PG&E, okay, well, you, you have your license for another year, you can continue doing what you're doing. Um, but we have just seen a letter from the National Marine Fisheries Service, which um, is, is really lighting a fire under PG&E and FERC to, uh, to get this project decommissioned and out of the river. Right, and so the National Marine Fisheries Service is another federal agency, and they're tasked with the responsibility of protecting and recovering endangered species. And so in the eel, we have three in endangered or threatened species. We have coho salmon, we have chinook salmon, and we have steelhead trout. And actually, we now have winter and summer steelhead. Right, that's an important distinction to make. The area that we're talking about, I mean, that the amount of ha the habitat that's upstream of the dams is primarily going to benefit uh, Chinook and Steelhead, but that's the that's one of the really fascinating things. And um, as a complete fisheries nerd, it's one of the things that really excites me about this potential opportunity is that there are these two distinct populations of Steelhead, 
And one of them is the Summer Run Steelhead, which we've, I've talked about on the show a long time ago, but they just have a slightly different life history pattern where they come into the rivers later in the year. And, and so you'll have these adult steelheads kind of uh, occupying habitat throughout the summer. And it was a long time favorite angling opportunity, but their numbers have really, really decreased. And actually because of Friends of the Eel, um, it is now listed with the state of California as endangered. It's still protected as threatened under the Federal Endangered Species Act. But all the same, there is a great study, and I forget who the researcher was that did all of the genetic assessment. Oh, that's Samantha Henry. Thank you. So her body of research is really fascinating, and she found, and I may be really dumbing down what her results were, but... She found That's that... That's kind of our job on radio shows. Like <laughs> yeah, <this>. right. <laughs> um, that there is a reservoir of summer steelhead genetics above the dams. And so that provides a very unique recovery opportunity for these resident trout populations but that have the genetics of summer steelhead. If they had the ability to migrate downstream, we might be able to bring in more genetic diversity and try and recover that. Yeah, that's, that's right. The, the way that I always like to explain it, which fisheries biologists everywhere probably cringe when I say this, but um, you know, rainbow trout are essentially the same as, as steelhead. Um, they're just the freshwater version of steelhead. They're just steelhead that don't go to the ocean, basically. And so the fact that this genetic coding for summer steelhead lives on in those trout um, there's really, like you said, there's this potential that their progeny could transform into summer steelhead, which is just such an amazing opportunity. And you know, like you said, the, the angling opportunities there, the you know, summer steelhead come into the river before they're sexually mature, they're fast and strong and healthy, and, um, and they access parts of the watershed that winter steelhead can't get to. And as anyone who's been around for a while knows... Trees grow on fish. You know, fish provide this really important service to the entire ecology of the watershed by transporting nutrients way, way, way up into the watershed. And um, and summer steelhead play a really unique role in that. Mm-hmm. So I want to go back and talk about the two basin partnership a little bit more and about the diversion. And because I think in some ways understanding the kind of creation of the two basin partnership and what they initially were trying to do as you know they were considering becoming the licensee mm-hmm. or at least trying to identify a licensee for a future collaborative solution to this issue where we have a, a hydropower plant that isn't really generating electricity but it is providing water so Can you talk a little bit about what happened to the Two Basin Partnership and why didn't they move forward? And what, uh, these are are kind of two big questions. Um, But the second question I have is, what are some of, what's, what's the likelihood and the potential that we could remove the dams and still provide water to these, um, different entities that have been relying on this water for a pretty long time at this point. Yeah, well, I would I would start off by saying that um, that the potential to continue an ecologically appropriate diversion is high. Um, that that potential's there, um, but what it requires is Russian River water users coming to the table and being willing to pay for this water. And that's 
Um, that, that can be a steep ask when you've been getting relatively abundant water for a really, really, really low price for so long. Um, you know, anyone who's familiar with water politics in California knows that water is money. And, um, and so to be receiving this water, um, you know, the community of Potter Valley especially, but other communities farther downstream that have been getting this water, they, they receive it um, for so cheap because it's considered as a waste byproduct of producing electricity. And I should mention that while this transformer is offline and PG&E is not producing electricity, they're sending a lot less water than they normally would to, to these communities, which is why when we talk about um, you know, the problems with this infrastructure and with the dam and, you know, um, the needle valve getting clogged, like all these problems are problems both for the eel and for water supply on the other side. So really, you know, getting this project out of the way and making sure that water can flow freely and, um, and exploring options for dam-less diversions, which, which there has been a good amount of study on, um, that, that really benefits everyone. Um, a, a really good resource for those of you who want to dig into some of the studies is pottervalleyproject.org. Um, this is a kind of repository for all of the studies that have gotten us to the place where we are now. So if you want to learn about the, um, you know, the, the analysis of fish passage options, if you want to learn about water supply in, in, from the eel and, and from the Russian, um, if you want to learn about what, it, what dam removal might look like, you know, just how big is that boom going to be, um, you can find those details in these studies. And one of the things that was kind of revealing in one of the studies is about water use in Potter Valley and how water use there is relatively inefficient. Um, they, they actually lose about, oh gosh, um, this is kind of a ballpark figure, but they lose about 4,000 acre feet every year. And that's almost the same amount that they use watering all of their row crops. Is that from leaks or is that from evaporation it's, or both? It's, yeah, it's, okay. from, it's from both. It's from evaporation and it's from, um, you know, leaching into the, um, into the groundwater. And, you know, we um, anecdotally have heard some interesting claims from folks in that region that if they were to line their irrigation canals, well, then they wouldn't have any groundwater resources. So there's a really um, pretty obvious connection here between the water that flows in those canals and, um, and where it's actually ending up. But my point in, in bringing all that up is that there are some ways that um, that, that community in particular can improve their water use efficiency and, um, and make a lot better use of a smaller amount of water. Um, you know, the other thing that's probably going to change is the seasonality of the diversion. Right now, water is diverted from the eel when the eel can't really afford to spare it. Um, and so when I talk about an ecologically appropriate diversion, that means a wet season diversion. Um, you know, diverting water out of the eel when we've got tens of thousands of CFS flowing down there and it's just, you know, uh, zooming on by, that's, that's totally fine and isn't going to harm the eel if it's done in the right way. And that's something that we, we can totally get behind um, as well as can many of the allies who are, who are fighting for the eel. Um, there's, and there's other options being explored as well. There's um, places farther up in the watershed that people are looking at to, you know, topographic maps and thinking, well, is there, you know, just because the diversion always happened at this particular place doesn't mean it needs to in the future. So there are a lot of options being evaluated and I would you know, really encourage anyone who's concerned about water supply 
um, to, to just recognize that probably you're going to have to be paying a little bit more for it in the future, just like everybody else in the rest of the state. Yeah, I was just thinking the same thing. Yeah, everybody <laughs> else is too. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, so the two basin partnerships, it's talking about money, <laughs> you know, one of the, th- I know there's more reasons for this, but the, the, the two basin partnership, one of the reasons why they didn't move forward was because they didn't have sufficient funding to take on all of the extensive studies that they were going to have to take on to be able to, to receive a, a hydropower, how, excuse me, hydropower license. So can we talk a little bit about like what happened to that group? Yeah, well, the, the simple answer is that um, they, they assumed that PG&E was going to be a willing partner who was going to um, probably fund a lot of these uh, study plans is, is what they're, the terminology in the FERC world. Um, and PG&E ultimately told this, this partnership Um, Well, because you aren't the ultimate entity that will own the license for the dams, we're not interested in negotiating with you. We're not interested in working with you. We're not even really that interested in talking to you. Um, And and so then that left the partners in a place where, you know, they were like $18 million short of the funding they needed just to do the studies. And that that doesn't even take into account the funding needed to, um, you know, actually rebuild any kind of infrastructure, uh, remove infrastructure, um, and do a whole host of other studies. So the good news about that is that now that responsibility lies back with PG&E. And this kind of brings us back to the California Public Utilities Commission because um, PG&E has, as I mentioned, a decommissioning reserve fund um, where they save up money just for these types of situations. And, um, you know, we're we're really interested in making sure that that reserve fund is sufficient to um, to handle decommissioning the Potter Valley project um, in the near term. Because if it's not, and and they're not, you know, setting aside money that they need to be now, um, we we could see a bit of a rate shock, um, which means uh, it's a term basically that means a sudden increase in rates for everyday users. Um, if PG&E isn't planning now for what we all know is coming. Mm, okay. So one question that, that well, it's interesting, like when, when I've been reading about this, a lot of times what you hear is, well, you know, after April 14th, when their license expires, FERC will allow PG&E, to, you know, these annual permits to continue to maintain it until eventually they have to surrender and come up with a plan for decommissioning unless another entity were to um, decide that they would take on um, you know securing a license and I just have to wonder like if it's if it's so incredibly expensive to do this and you're dealing with a lot of maintenance issues on an old facility like what is the likelihood that there could be a new entity to come into this mix and that would be willing to maintain and operate a system that provides energy water and fish passage zero at, at this point and you know because um there's there's kind of some statutory things that come into play here but basically because the license expires in, gosh, I think when this episode airs, we'll probably be like 20 days away from their license expiring. Um, there's there's really just no time for anyone else to prepare a license application in that short time. Um, what we are likely to see is a letter from FERC saying to PG&E, okay, 
your license has expired, please prepare your license surrender application. And then we'll, you know, probably within 90 days or so, we'll see something from PG&E that outlines their plan and their schedule for preparing that. Um, my understanding is that preparing their license surrender application could be about a two-year process. Um, so, you know, we'll, um, we'll be using all the resources we have, like I said, to light a fire under PG&E. Gosh, that's probably a terrible terminology to use when you're talking about PG&E. But um, we, will, we will properly incentivize <laughs> them to do what's right and move quickly to get these dams out. Because, you know, the fact of the matter is that the, the eel presents some really incredible opportunities. But that doesn't mean that we're not still teetering on the brink. And um, you know, particularly when it comes to really, really endangered species like the summer steelhead, but also Chinook and, and winter steelhead, um, they don't have a lot of time to spare. And getting up to that habitat, um, which has been described by National Marine Fisheries Service as some of the best habitat in the entire eel watershed, um, is, is really, really important. Um, so if we're talking about, you know, tacking an extra 10 years onto the weight here, that could mean disaster for Eel River fish. Um, so we're, we're really going to be pushing to get PG&E to act swiftly. Yeah, that's one thing that I have been thinking about. It's just like w with climate change, extended droughts, and, and already predictions that um, salmon could be you know, completely removed from the California landscape in 50 years, I would argue that there isn't enough, like 15 years is too long. Totally. That there isn't enough time and that we really need to, to the best extent possible, you know, expedite that process because these fish need to get to that cold water habitat before we lose them as a whole. As a whole. So we already talked a little bit about nymphs, but... Um, this is where things get kind of interesting because you have multiple agencies that have different responsibilities. What are some of the federal agencies doing to, as a part of this process to kind of um, advocate for the recovery of salmon and steelhead? Yeah, well, before we get into that, I just want to really drive home. You know, we keep talking about this habitat and I hear from a lot of people who say, oh, there's no water up above the dam, so it's too warm up there. Um, but the, the fact is that it actually, because there are, there's a lot of spring-fed tributaries up there, um, there are a lot of relatively deep cold water pools up there. There's habitat that is inaccessible by the pike minnow, which not only compete with salmon and steelhead, but they also predate on them. Um, and so there's habitat up there that is both too cold and too difficult to access for the pike minnow, where salmon and steelhead could get to and safely rear their juveniles. Um, it's just like, I, I cannot understate the importance of, of that habitat and the fact that it remains cold even in relatively dry, warm years. Um, and that's something that we know thanks to nymphs. Um, and then, you know, to get to your question of what are some of the agencies doing, um, one thing that NIMS just did is they, they sent in a letter to FERC um, where they, they outlined some of the things that FERC is going to need to do once this license expires next month. Um, and, and they, you know, they put it in pretty plain language. In fact, it's so plain that I'm going to do what's normally very frowned upon and just read to you from their letter briefly. Um, they say that they conclude that the project is causing take of ESA listed salmonids in a manner not anticipated with 
with the opinion, which is something else that they're referencing. Um, but but basically, they're they're very plain and clear that this project is causing causing take of listed species, and and nymphs is not okay with that. That's their job to prevent such um, such disasters from occurring. They also outline uh, interim protective measures that will need to be adopted um, is as part of these annual licenses. So when the license expires, there's a number of uh, permits and protections that uh, PG&E and FERC enjoy that are a part of their license. And one of those is, is incidental take coverage. So basically, um, PG&E is allowed to operate a project that kills ESA-listed species because they have a permit to, to do so. Um, but that permit expires really soon. And at that point, then, they will be operating outside of the law, to put it really frankly. And so NIMS has outlined a number of... Um, a number of measures that should be adopted to make sure that while the project continues to operate for the next few years, that it operates causing the least amount of harm possible. Mm -hmm. And just for everyone, take basically means that under federal law, not that you just can't, it doesn't just protect against mortality from this fish. It protects uh, against degradation of their habitat. It protects them from even being harassed. So that term means a lot of things that's right um, yeah i'm glad you brought up pike minnow because i we were talking a lot about salmon and steelhead there are other fish that benefit from dam removal so maybe we'll start with that and, and then I'll, I'll ask you my pike minnow question. well okay yeah i was gonna say I, I would argue that pike minnow benefit from the dam being in place yeah, but um you know i I don't think I could talk about the Eel River without talking about lamprey. They're the iconic species that, you know, if you've spent time in the river at all, you have probably seen these big worm-like creatures. They're these super, super cool, really ancient fish. Um, they, they have more, more um, nutritional content than salmon, so they're an excellent food source for everyone in the watershed. They're, they're a staple of indigenous diets and they, you know, perform that same function that, that, um, salmon and steelhead do by moving nutrients around the watershed. Um, and, but their, their mobility is pretty different than, uh, salmon and steelhead. They can't jump a fish ladder. They in fact have these, these like kind of creepy sucker fish looking mouths and they'll use their mouths to, um, to suck onto a flat surface and then kind of wiggle their body around and use their mouths like a, like a suction cup to move themselves around. Um, it's heartbreaking to watch them try to climb a fish ladder. I, I stood there at the Cape Horn fish ladder once for probably 40 minutes watching these guys try to climb the ladder. And I, I think I saw one make it like up two steps maybe in that time. It's, it's incredibly difficult for them. So when the dams are removed, it will mean that species like the lamprey or other anadromous species like, um, like the green sturgeon will be able to move throughout the watershed freely. Um, it also means that you know other things like sediment will be able to move throughout the watershed freely. And so the river below Cape Horn Dam won't be so sediment starved. Um, and I should say too, just throwing this out there, um, it will mean that there will be less natural accumulation of methylmercury in the mm -hmm. reservoir, which is something that naturally happens in anaerobic environments, um, but is, is really bad for aquatic life. And side note, folks, 
probably don't be eating any fish that you catch in Lake Pillsbury uh, because those fish, um, some of them have tested extremely high for mercury. So there's a lot of uh, other benefits to the watershed in removing these dams. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, the eel was named after lamprey, which is pretty, you know, interesting. And I've seen videos of them trying to make it up the ladder. I mean, you could probably even find it on YouTube, I bet. And it is. It's kind of heartbreaking. But then they're so persistent. So it's like they are. really pretty inspiring, too. And, and um there have been some modifications to the diversion, though, to provide lamprey passage, right? It's kind of like a, a funny... That's right, yeah. Um, one, you know, really uh, clever staff person, I think it was someone who worked for U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, I think it actually might have been Damon Goodman, um, <laughs> engineered this big tube, basically. Um, you know the, the dryer hose tubes at the back of your dryer at your house? It's something that looks kind of like that, and it turns out that it was... A, a wonderful way for lamprey to be able to um, you know, pass over the dam. And, you know, so it's just, it, it really goes to show that when, when humans are modifying a natural landscape that we need to be thinking about all the species in the region and all the ecological processes, frankly, um, because it's not just that one cool fish that we know about that are, are being, um, you know, that are being affected by what we're doing. Right. Yeah, and lamprey, basically, they can't go over a 90-degree bend. So right. throughout the state, with all fish passage projects, not specifically fish ladders associated with dams, you know, designs are being created to facilitate lamprey passage because now we know. Yeah. <laughs> they can go straight, but they can't make a 90-degree bend. Um, so, so that was interesting about the, the mercury in Lake Pillsbury. I actually didn't realize that, but it makes sense because that isn't uncommon. So yeah, there's a lot of recreational opportunities in Lake Pillsbury and perhaps that, that, that is one of the, it's always bittersweet, whether you're replacing an undersized culvert or taking out a dam, you usually, you know, lose like someone's favorite swim hole or perhaps a, you know, big recreational lake and people fish and they used to put pike minnow they would dump they would use pike minnow as bait right and they would dump it in the reservoir and so now we have this massive pike minnow problem how does dam removal again what what are the ramifications of dam removal as it relates to um this invasive species yeah well um pike minnow have a different thermal tolerance than than salmon and steelhead so they thrive in the warm and kind of stagnant waters in the reservoir and they're they're able to be extremely successful in those conditions and then they're they're basically shot right out that needle valve into all the waiting salmonids that are trying to get up the dam they're just shot right into a pile of salmon that they then start munching on it's um it's it's really tragic and unfortunately pike minnow have now proliferated throughout the entire watershed so it's not a case of remove the dam and the pike minnow go away um but by removing the dam, we're removing um, a, a portion of habitat for pike minnow that benefits them and doesn't benefit any of the native species. So that's, that's something that's really exciting. Um, and actually, you know, going back to nymphs, one of the interim conditions that they mention in their letter is that PG&E needs to continue their pike minnow, pike minnow suppression efforts. Um, I... I'm not prepared to go into a lot of detail here, but um, I would argue that PG&E's pike minnow suppression efforts have been woefully inadequate. Um, but 
The good news is that the WIAT tribe, uh, in partnership with Stillwater Sciences and maybe, maybe some other folks that I am failing to mention, um, they've been doing some great work learning about pike minnow, tagging them, studying their their behaviors, and um, and really exploring the best methods for pike minnow removal. So, you know, hopefully that great work can continue, and once we get these dams out, then we can turn our attention to eradicating this invasive species from the river. You know, it's Sacramento pike minnow, just for listeners. It's a native California fish species, but it is not native to the eel it's a voracious predator it's like almost like a bass like it'll eat anything it can get its mouth on so it's it's a it's a big predatory species of once it reaches a certain size of all kinds of native fish assemblages and i actually think that if we could restore a natural um, flow regime through the eel that because pike minnow management is very very complicated <laughs> and and hard to be successful at we keep talking about April. So, you know, you mentioned that there's about a two year process probably for the license surrender and then um, PG&E will have to also submit a decommissioning plan and all that's gonna have to get approved. And I'm kind of curious, um, you know, in this interim time period where we're all kind of waiting to see what happens next, for people that are really interested in this, is, are there things that pe like the general public can do? Are there, is it helpful for people to, um, you know, write to their representatives or how, how can people get involved with this if, if this is something that they're interested in support? Yeah, absolutely. Well, there's, there's different levels to it. Um, you know, if you, if you want to write to FERC and tell them, you know, make PG&E take some action, um, you can always do so. Um, there are, you know, obviously there's formal opportunities for that and we will always let the public know when those opportunities come about. Um, they're actually... If you wanted to write to FERC right now, uh, there is an action alert on Friends of the Eels website. Um, it's it's about to become obsolete when that license expires in 25 days. Um, but yeah, so there's there's always an opportunity to write to an agency like FERC um, and definitely talking to your representatives. Um, you know, some of the folks that are going to be playing a big role in this. Congressman Huffman, obviously, he's um, he's got a huge stake in this. Um, Senator McGuire, Assemblymember Woods, you know, those are, it's kind of all in their, in their territory. Um, but I think one of the best things that people can be doing is talking to each other. Um, you know, we, we look a lot to the Klamath as kind of a case, his case story of, um, you know, what, what can go wrong and what can go right in the process of agreeing to remove dams. And, you know, the Klamath, um, it's, it's been a really, really interesting story to watch, and um, it's been a really lengthy one, and that is not what we want for the eel. And um, one thing that the Klamath has um, been really, really successful at is building this wave of support for dam removal. You know, anytime you see people talking about Klamath dam removal or hear people talking about it, there are a ton of people behind that message. And, um, and that's what we want to see on the eel. So folks, when you're out there, um, you know, on your boat, on the river, and you see some other folks on a boat, shout out to them, undam the eel, you know, talk to your friends and your neighbors, talk to the strangers that you see, um, tell everybody that this is a wonderful thing. Um, 
And yes, we know change can be scary for, for folks who enjoy recreating in the reservoir. Um, but you know what is also really exciting is new meadows and new habitat and an active, successful fishery. Like imagine if you could rent out your cabin along with a bunch of fishing equipment. And, um, you know, it's what we've seen time and time again from dam removal stories is that um, there's there's often a group of folks who are, you know, concerned about what the change is going to bring. And inevitably, years down the road, their property values have increased. And it's really having a healthy, free-flowing river adjacent to your property is, is a wonderful asset. Yeah. Um, and in fact... Once the da- once the eel is undammed, it's going to be the longest free flowing river in the state. Wow, that's a tongue t- twister. That is <laughs> well, and it's also like it's a hundred year old. I mean, it, it's a hundred year old liability. Like, yeah. <laughs> you know, there, there's one thing to be said about, and and I don't want to um, be dismissive of of some of the the kind of losses, like because of people's nostalgic family traditions of doing certain things or, you know, like it's always hard with these types of projects, whether they're small barrier removals or it's dam removal, because there's, there's a trade-off. But like you said, a lot of times in the end, you, particularly because these are very kind of collaborative efforts anyways, there's a way to kind of envision the future that's more predictable and safe. Exactly. Which seems like a good thing to me. And... I, what I would love to see is, um, you know, folks in Lake County who are concerned about this come to the table with um, with reasonable requests of what they would like to see come out of this process. Keeping the dams is not a reasonable request. I'm sorry, folks. I hate to break it to you. It is inevitable that those dams are coming down. But boy, wouldn't it be cool if if Lake County could get some funding for improving other infrastructure, um, could get improved uh, internet service, could get some of their roads maintained better, um, could get some new some new trails. Um, you know, there's there's really some significant opportunities here, and um, and it requires everyone kind of accepting the reality that these dams are definitely coming down. And like you said, envisioning the future that they want. And I think that's something that we can all work together on. Um, but but it really requires that we're all on the same page about what is realistically going to happen. Yeah, that's a good point. You also said the magic word. You said infrastructure. <laughs> yeah. Which reminds me of the bipartisan federal infrastructure bill, which has millions, like tens of millions, maybe hundreds of millions of dollars for dam removal right now. So it is like it's unique that we're in a situation where PG&E has des- PG&E has made the decision not to renew their license, which opens up the opportunity for dam removal. It's also unique that we are in a scenario where there is a lot of funding available to plan and support implementing this kind of thing from happening. So I hope that all of that can come together in an effort to make this happen a little more quickly. Um, and I do think it's good for us all to be talking about it. And that's, I'm so appreciative that you could sit and talk with me about this, Leisha. You're, you, you are a wealth of information oh, about the eel <laughs> in general. But it, this is a really confusing topic. And even as someone who works in the fisheries restoration world, I get confused by what's going on with the dams. So um, anything else?
else you want to add before we close? Um, you know, I just I just really want to emphasize that there is significant opportunity in the Eel River and and that opportunity extends throughout the entire state. You know, the eel is is probably our last and best chance to secure salmonid populations for the entire state. We we have such wonderful habitat in the eel. We have habitat that's intact. We have these large properties that are owned. So there's not subdivision and development going on all over the place. Um, we're really fortunate. And we still have these wild runs of fish, which is really, really unusual and, and wonderful. Um, so it's, you know, it's not just about the eel, which I think anyone who knows it loves it. Um, it's, it's about the entire state and, um, and not wanting to be the generation that allows fish that have been around for millions of years to go extinct on our watch. Right. I mean, the Klamath Dam removals are going to start next year, potentially. And we yeah, will have they are. the Klamath, yeah. which is another one of the largest watersheds in California, and the eel. I mean, the, the, compi the combined ramifications of all of those dams coming out for salmon recovery is really, really inspiring for someone like me because we are working on little projects here and there as much as we can, as fast as we can. But if you can remove a dam and provide 200 miles of habitat, mostly for steelhead, but also for Chinook, like what is it, like 90 miles for Chinook? Yep. Um, that's huge. Huge. That's huge. huge. <laughs> and you're right that there are, you know, there are other things that need to be addressed in, in, the, in the eel, in the ocean. You know, I start thinking about ocean conditions and my mind kind of starts spinning. Um, but, but this is a huge opportunity and, you know, every little bit that we can do for the fish right now is, is going to make a big difference. Great. Where can people learn about Friends of the Eel? Eelriver.org. Or if you're a social media user, we are on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Friends Eel River is our handle. Thank you to my guest, Alicia Heyman with Friends of the Eel River, and to you, the listeners. I'm Anna Halligan, and this is the Ecology Hour on Mendocino County Public Broadcasting, listener-supported community radio. This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening. Yeah.